Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the very first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And we are just beginning this journey through Luke's Gospel. This is the third message. We come today to the 26th verse. And Lord willing, I'll read through verse 38. The title of the sermon is, How Can This Be? The Doctrine of the Virgin Birth. Now let's read the text. Verse 26, chapter 1. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. To a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David and the virgin's name was Mary. Coming in he said to her greetings favored one the Lord is with you but she was very perplexed at the statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her do not be afraid Mary for you have found favor with God and behold you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. She who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed her. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. This past summer, my family and I spent a portion of our vacation in the state of Montana. And as we were driving along the interstate towards the city of Butte, Montana, the sun was setting and we saw glistening on the horizon a beautiful white figure. And we didn't know what it was. And as we got a little closer, we saw at the very top of a mountain that overlooked the city of Butte a statue of the Virgin Mary. And as we got into town and had our dinner, there were pamphlets in every restaurant and in every place of business for tours that you could get on a bus there in Butte and it would take you through the winding roads up to the top of this mountain. And there many people came from all over the world to pray to the statue of the Virgin Mary. And it was a great opportunity for me to share with my children why we as Baptists don't do that and why we would not be taking that tour. (laughs) And so I want to uh, expand upon that conversation a little bit with you this morning as we talk about what we believe about the virgin birth of Jesus. Now this incredible birth announcement came from the mouth of God's personal messenger, an angel by the name of Gabriel. You may know that the Greek word angelos, that we get the English word angel from, simply means messenger. And this is the second time here in chapter 1 that we see this angel Gabriel. The first time, of course, is when he appeared to Zacharias there in the temple as he was offering the incense offering and announced to him that he was going to be a dad and that his wife Elizabeth 
who had been barren and was now in her old age, would conceive a son, and that son would be named John. And now, six months later, this angel appears to a relative of Elizabeth, a young girl named Mary. And he has a similar announcement that she would conceive a child, a son, and his name would be Jesus. Now, we might expect an angel to come to a priest of the Lord like Zacharias in a holy place such as the temple. But on this occasion, Gabriel shows up in a very unexpected place in a little village called Nazareth in an out-of-the-way region called Galilee, a place so obscure and unimportant that even a man as good as Nathaniel said, can anything good come from there? But Hebrews 1.14, speaking of angels, says that they are ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Now we find a number of places in the scriptures where God sends his angels to minister to his people. I think of the prophet Elijah after he had won his great victory over the prophets of Baal there on Mount Carmel, took to his heels and ran from that wicked queen Jezebel. He despaired of life and came to a place where he was just exhausted and he collapsed in sleep. And when he woke up, there was an angel there cooking his supper. Scripture says, baking bread over a fire. That was the very first angel food cake, I'm convinced. <laughs> Daniel chapter 6. Daniel is cast into the lion's den. The next morning when they came to check on him, he was still alive. And they were perplexed why he was. And he said, God sent an angel of the Lord in the night to shut the lion's mouth. I think of the prophet Elisha, who the Lord was giving instructions to about what the king of Aram, the enemy of Israel, was doing. So much so that the king of Aram came to the conclusion that there was a spy in the camp. And so he called his generals together and says, which one of us is against us? I thought the same thing as I watched my alma mater play football this weekend. <laughs> Are you guys for us or against us? But someone in the camp said, no, it's not us. It's that prophet of the Lord named Elisha. And so he sent his horsemen with their chariots to get Elisha. And the servant of the Lord saw them coming, Elisha's servant. He was very afraid, but Elisha wasn't. And Elisha said to the young lad, he says, those that are for us are more than those who are with them. And he asked the Lord to open his spiritual eyes, and the Lord did and he saw that camped all around them were God's holy angels protecting them. I think of the New Testament where the Apostle Paul on one of his journeys in, in the bottom of a boat and the tempest is threatening to tear the ship apart and it seems like everyone would drown. But an angel of the Lord came to him and said, fear not, no one's going to be lost. Though the ship was, everyone made it safely to shore. And so angels are sent from God to help his people. Such is the case here as the angel of the Lord Gabriel brings this great and helpful message to Mary. So let's look at this girl, Mary. Scripture describes her as a virgin. Now this was predicted, of course, in the book of Isaiah that the Savior would come through a virgin. It was verified in two of the four Gospels, Matthew and here in the Gospel of Luke. There's probably no doctrine in the Christian faith more vilified and doubted than the doctrine of the virgin birth. When you talk to critics and atheists and you talk about the virgin birth, 
their collective eyes roll up in the back of their head and they say, yeah, right. And that sort of doubt has given rise to all sorts of heretical literature ascribing the father of Jesus to anything from a Roman soldier to worse. But the Bible teaches that Jesus' birth was miraculous in that he did not have an earthly father. Now Mary at the time of this announcement was likely a young teenager, probably 13 to 15 years old. That was the customary age of marriage for girls in Israel. Scripture says she was engaged to a man named Joseph. You may be aware that in those days there was an engagement period or betrothal period of one full year to test the purity of the couple. And while the man prepared a place for his wife to live, usually in his father's home, and then he would come and get his bride and there would be a great marriage feast. This is during the period of betrothal. And so the angel comes and he calls Mary favored one. He says, the Lord is with you. This is what you want to hear when Gabriel shows up. I've got good news. Not here to kill you. The Lord is on your side. You found favor with God. Now Mary is a humble servant of the Lord. In fact, she refers to herself here as the handmaiden of the Lord. By the way, that's the, exactly the same word that Hannah used in the Old Testament. When she prayed for a child, she called herself a handmaiden of the Lord. So the question before us is, who is Mary? Well, Mary is a humble servant girl, likely a godly young woman who had the greatest privilege in the world to be the means, the vessel through which God would send his greatest blessing to man. She is a sinner in need of a savior. So it behooves us to say not only who Mary was, but who she was not. Mary was and is not sinless. Mary was and is not a co-redeemer with Jesus. Mary was and is not the one who distributes the grace of God. And I must say that because many of you were taught that growing up in Roman Catholic churches. And it's simply not true. It's why we don't sing Ave Maria in this church. And please stop asking us to. You say, oh, it's such a beautiful song, Pastor. It is, because it is sung in Italian. And if you could read the phone book in Italian, it would be beautiful. <laughs> but when you translate the words into English, you get the full picture. Here's, here's what the song Ave Maria says, by the way, in English. Virgin of the sky, sovereign of thanksgiving and loving mother, accept the fervent prayer of everybody, do not refuse to the lost person of mine, love. Truce in his pain, my lost soul turns to you and full of repentment humbles at your feet. It invokes you and waits for the true peace that only you can give. That is sung as a prayer to Mary. That's why we don't sing it here. That is not beautiful. That is actually a heresy called Mariolatry, the worship of Mary and have nothing to do with it. Satan often mixes, by the way, his poison with beauty. Be aware of that. And so that is Mary, a servant of the Lord, a sinner in need of a savior. But that brings us thirdly to the miracle itself. Look at verse 31. The angel says to Mary, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And 
you will name him Jesus. Now, that announcement is not miraculous. There are many young girls who conceive in their womb. And by the way, the word Jesus was not miraculous or even rare. It was a derivative of the common name Joshua, which means the Lord saves. The miracle comes later when he says he will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. That's the miracle, that Jesus would be conceived in the womb of a virgin girl. This is a miracle, but a different sort of miracle. John the Baptist's conception was a miracle in that it came to a barren couple in their old age, but John the Baptist was conceived through the interaction of a man and a woman. Jesus was not. This was an altogether unique birth in human history. Conceived without an earthly father, the creative act of the Holy Spirit. Now you do know that the Holy Spirit was present and the agent of creation in Genesis chapter 1. When God said, let there be light, and there was light. The scripture says the Spirit was hovering over the face of the deep. He was the agent of that miracle of creation. And so it should not surprise us now at this miracle of the creation, the conception of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the active agent. Thus, the biblical declaration of the doctrine of the virgin birth. Now, people at this point sometimes say, well, look, God could have brought Jesus into the world in any way he chose. And I agree with that. But this is the way he chose, according to the Bible. It's through a virgin birth, and that's why we teach it, and that's why we believe it. And you say, with many Christians who've said through the ages, what does it matter? Is the virgin birth really an essential doctrine? And I argue this morning that it is. First, I make an argument from history. As we look back through the 2,000 years of Christian history, the doctrine of the virgin birth has been an essential element of almost every Christian confession. Go back to the Nicene Creed. Listen to it. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God begotten from the Father before all ages, God from light, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. And for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate, listen to this, by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. Now the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. This is what Christians have historically believed and taught. We say, well, pastor, we're Baptists. What do Baptists believe? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> this from our Baptist faith and message, which by the way, is also our adopted doctrinal statement here at First Baptist Church of Keller. Christ is the eternal Son of God. In His incarnation as Jesus Christ, He was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the 
Virgin Mary. This is what historically Christians have taught and believed. This is what Baptists historically taught and believed. And incidentally, this is what your, your pastor believes and teaches. One of my favorite Baptists is Albert Moeller. Dr. Moeller is the president, longtime president of Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And he was asked back in 2010, must one believe in the virgin birth to call oneself an evangelical Christian? This is what he said, quote, must one believe in the virgin birth to be a Christian? This is not a hard question to answer. It is conceivable that someone might come to Christ and trust Christ as Savior without yet learning that the Bible teaches that Jesus was born of a virgin. A new believer is not yet aware of the full structure of Christian truth. The real question is, can a Christian once aware of the Bible's teaching reject the virgin birth? The answer must be no, end quote. Which leads us to our fourth and final point. Now we've looked at the messenger, that is Gabriel, the Lord's personal messenger, who brought the message that you, Mary, are going to conceive in your womb, and the fruit of your womb will be the Savior of the world. And then we have seen Mary, this young, humble servant girl from this little obscure, out-of-the-way place called Nazareth, in a little region called Galilee. We've seen the miracle itself, clearly predicted in the Old Testament by Isaiah, verified in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. And now we come to the crux of the matter, the meaning of the virgin birth. That is, why is it so important? Why have Christians held to it so tightly through the years when it's been so maligned, when the scientists and the humanists and the atheists cast their stones about it? Do we really need to hold to this? And I argue yes for five reasons. Number one, because of the uniqueness of the birth equals the uniqueness of the person. The uniqueness of the birth equals the uniqueness of the person. Would you agree with me that Jesus is like no other person in human history? The question is, what makes him unique? Well, he is the God-man. He is a man in that he had blood in his veins. When he got tired, he needed sleep. When he got thirsty, he needed water. When he got hungry, he needed food. When he cut his finger, he bled. He had a nature like ours, the scripture says, tempted in every way that we are. And yet he is God in the flesh. He knew everything at once. When Paul said in Philippians that he emptied himself out and took on the form of a servant, what he does not mean in that is that he ceased to be God when he became a man. And so he is unique in human history. And so it makes sense that the most unique person in human history has the most unique birth in human history. He's the only human being who was born without an earthly father. Now, Adam was created by the word of the Lord, right? He did not have an earthly father or mother, and that was unique in that he was a unique person. The scripture says, as sin entered the world through Adam, even so shall salvation come through one person, Christ. And so as Adam's creation was unique, Jesus' birth was unique. The second reason why we must and should hold to this doctrine of the virgin birth is the holy sinless requirement 
of the atonement. What I mean by that is the scripture teaches that the eyes of the Lord wander all over the world. And how many righteous men and women does he find? Nary a one, right? Not one. Scripture says there is none righteous, not even one. And so if we can agree that all humanity has a great problem and that they are born into sin, sinners by nature, sinners by choice, according to Romans 3.23. We need salvation, just as Mary needed salvation. The problem is none of us fits the bill because all of us are sinners and sinners can't atone for sinners. And so Jesus sends uniquely into the world this promise of the atonement. Because Jesus was conceived and ultimately born, make no mistake about this, not to be a good example to the rest of us. That's what a lot of people calling themselves Christians are teaching out there, that Jesus just lived this exemplary life that if we would aspire to live like Jesus, then we could cure all the ails of the world. Look, Jesus did live an exemplary life. In fact, he lived a perfect life, which qualified him to do what he came to do once he was born, and that is to die upon the cross in our place, the atonement for sins. And so what God is showing is that Jesus could not have been born as, as men are born. That would make him just like us. And so he had to have a unique birth, showing his sinlessness, even by nature. We know that he never sinned volitionally, because the scripture says he was attempted in every way we are, yet without sin he went to the cross. The, the, the ancient theologians used to call this alien righteousness, right? Alien means outside of something. So salvation could not come from within no matter what the mystics say. By the way, that's the essence of secular humanism, that the answer to all of our problems resides within us, right? We've just got to tap into the goodness that is inherent. Biblical Christianity says there's no goodness inherent within us. And so if we are to have righteousness, it has to come from outside of us, namely through the person and work of Jesus. And so what happens on the cross, for those who believe, is that God counts his sacrifice in our place to our account. That is, the scripture says, he who knew no sin became sin, right? God the Father treated him on the cross as if he had done all of our sin. And then, here's the beautiful truth, in exchange, he gives us his inherent righteousness. We call that imputed righteousness. Is that a deal or what, right? He takes our sin away and replaces it with his righteousness. And this is what Christ came to do. To fulfill the holy sinless requirement of the atonement required the virgin birth. And then we need to believe the virgin birth because it is the fulfillment of prophecy. We claim in this church and as Baptists to be inerrantist, don't we? We believe all the Bible is true. And when the Bible predicts things are going to happen, and then it says it did happen, we need to teach that as if it did. For example, here in Luke chapter 1, we have the fulfillment of several prophecies. Look at verse 27. He's to, to a virgin. That's what Isaiah predicted. Then he says, of the descendants of David. And, and we know that David was promised by God that there would always be a descendant of his on the throne of Israel. 
And that's confused a lot of people because we know, speaking of history, that when David died, his son Solomon took the throne. And when Solomon died, the kingdom split into the northern and southern kingdom, and it never was the same. And it doesn't exist today. So does this prove the Bible was false? Of course not. God, of course, was speaking of the Messiah, who is an eternal king and would have an eternal reign. Look what he says in verse 35. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. This is a holy God. Verse 32 says, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Aha, the fulfillment of that prophecy. Verse 33, he will reign over the house of Jacob. How long? Forever. Here we have the fulfillment of that prophecy. And the Bible is full in the Old Testament of prophecies of the Messiah. And Jesus fulfilled everyone, including the virgin birth. Now, that leads us finally to, to this point. We must teach and believe the virgin birth of Jesus because of all of Scripture, not just the prophecies, but all of Scripture hinges upon it. We live in a world that loves to cut and paste the Bible. That is to highlight those areas of the Bible that we like, that appeal to us, and ignore or take out those portions that don't appeal to us so much. And you say, well, I know you're talking about the liberals now. No, I'm talking about, <clears throat> unfortunately, some claiming to be conservative evangelical Christians. Just recently, one of the most famous and best-selling evangelical authors declared that Christians need to quit asking people to believe all the Bible because that's just too much for most people. We just need to tell them a little bit about Jesus and the gospel and, and leave the rest alone. Well, with, with apologies to that gentleman, it was through the whole council of Scripture that I got saved. The gospel is found in the scriptures. And the Bible says we're not to add to or take away from it. In fact, uh, as I told you what Spurgeon said, how do we defend the Bible? Well, we defend it like a caged lion. We turn the lock and let him out, right? Don't be ashamed of the scripture. Don't be ashamed of the virgin birth, especially at this season of the year. Here we stand at the threshold of the Christmas season. And we're gonna have opportunities to share with our lost neighbors and our friends. They're gonna come into our home and we're gonna get Christmas cards and send gifts and have all of these interactions in the community. We need to set our mind very clearly about what Christmas is. And part of Christmas, a huge part of Christmas, is the doctrine of the virgin birth. Let me just close with a quote from a man by the name of Don McLeod. Mr. McLeod wrote a book years ago called The Person of Christ. And in his chapter on the virgin birth, he says this, quote, The virgin birth is posted on guard at the door of the mystery of Christmas. And none of us must think of hurrying past it. It stands on the threshold of the New Testament, blatantly supernatural, defying our rationalism informing us that all that follows belongs to the same order as itself and that if we find it offensive,
there's no point in proceeding further, end quote. So what he says is, here's Christmas. We're about to enter the season. Here's the door into the Christmas season. On the door hangs a wreath called the virgin birth. And when you get to the door and you're about to enter the Christmas season, if you're offended by the doctrine of the virgin birth, that is you reject it, you might as well turn around and go home because you're going to be offended by the rest of it as well. And so instead, let's accept it. Let's receive it. Let's believe it because it was given to us as a great gift by the Lord himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for every portion of your revelation, including the doctrine of the virgin birth. And Father, we know that you created this planet and everything in it by a word. So Father, you certainly can create a baby by your word. And you did through your Holy Spirit. Father, we uh, pray you'd give us a deeper understanding of the significance of the incarnation and of the virgin birth this Christmas season that we may share with our neighbors and uh, lead them to salvation as well. Father, I pray for some in our church who have been misled and taught false doctrine as it relates to this um, story and of Mary and of her role. Father, we're grateful that you use servants like this humble girl to accomplish your will. And you use humble people today who will submit to your authority. Lord, help us to be vessels through which your blessings flow to this community. Father, I pray if there's a lost person in this room today, that they would not go into the Christmas season in that condition. They would humble themselves, submit to your calling, repent of their sins, and by faith receive this greatest gift of all, salvation through faith alone, by the grace of Christ alone. Father, I pray you do this for your own namesake and for your own glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.